You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Oh, the Bible, the Holy Bible, let your mind find peace in God's Word. Thanks for downloading another wonderfully erudite edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore, and I'll be your moderator today. I am Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I'm joined online today by Mr. David Grubbs coming at you from Athens. David, how are you doing? Uh, Pretty much splendid, sir. Excellent. David is a graduate assistant and a diligent writer of dissertation material at the University of Georgia. Oh, yeah. And also from Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida, Mr. Michael Farmer. How are you doing, Michael? I'm good. I'm wearing a suit today, so, you know, that makes you smarter. <laughs> oh, it does. It does. Folks, uh, if you look at your iPod screen right now, you'll be able to see Michael in his suit. Michael, of course, is uh, adjunct instructor of developmental writing at Tallahassee Community College. Uh, this week on the blog, we've got our normal features, some links, some Bible posts. Uh, a book review that I forgot to mention last time that we broadcast. Uh, all sorts of good material that you can find at christianhumanist.org slash chb. Uh, also, a little reminder for our listeners this week, uh, CWC, the radio show, has started its spring season. Uh, they are two episodes in, so it's not too late to jump in and follow along. Uh, they are without Sam Mulberry this season for the first time in the show's history. Oh, no. Uh, But even in his absence, even though we love Sam dearly, uh, they had a really good discussion this week about the concept of Western civilization, uh, where it arises in the English-speaking world when people start teaching courses called Western Civ. Good discussion. Go to iTunes U. You've got to resubscribe every season, but it's worth doing, folks. Uh, Today's material, guys, this is a 400th anniversary year uh, and a 400th anniversary episode, I suppose. Uh, we are talking today about a genuine monument of the English language, uh, something that people from across the spectrum intellectually, religiously, politically agree has been, if nothing else, uh, the text that has trained the English-speaking world in written literacy really for the last 400 years, almost its entire run, I'm talking, of course, about the King James Bible. Uh, This is our topic today, and we're going to talk about that grand legacy that it has and what makes it such a wonderful translation. But first, uh, we should give a bit of history before we dig into that legacy. Uh, So, David, in brief, uh, what spurred King James I of England and the VI of Scotland uh, to commission a new English translation of the Bible? Uh, What were this Bible's forerunners and what marked King James's Bible, which it wasn't called there at first, as a distinctive translation. Okay. Well, to answer this question, uh, I, I think it's useful to uh, to go to the introduction that the translators wrote uh, to to it, um, and they actually have a uh, sort of a, a brief synopsis of translations of the Bible. Uh, beginning with uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek, they talk about. Uh, if I remember correctly, they 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 mention the Septuagint, but going to English, um, they talk about uh, the Venerable Bede, who uh, is it, it, at least it's recorded that he he did translations of the Psalms and translations of the Gospel of John, though not all of that work has survived. Uh, much later, the Anglo-Saxon cleric Alfred also translated. Um, big chunks of the Bible, though not the whole thing, uh, into Old English. But from that point, you basically have to skip ahead a lot of centuries to John Wycliffe uh, in the, uh, well, 1300s. 
He was a contemporary of Henry V. Uh, if our listeners remember from our nationalism episode, Henry V was the English king who uh, really brought the vernacular English language into the government as the as the official language of uh, well the speeches that the monarch gave and also the 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 language in which records were kept. Um, apparently, this this passion for the vernacular uh, extended into well, the 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 scriptures, and so John Wycliffe set out set about to uh, to translate the Bible into English. That was not hugely popular, and for that reason, after Wycliffe's death, his bones got dug up and burned, <laughs> um, because he was also uh, well, he was considered the the great brain behind the the late uh, medieval English heresy of Lollardy, which. Uh, in the Protestant Reformation was actually seen as, as something of a, a pre-Reformation forebear. Now, fast forwarding to the Reformation, we get a whole spate of, uh, of, of translations. Um, Tyndale and Miles, uh, William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale uh, produce uh, a Bible uh, going directly back to the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, and this, this Bible is, uh, it's, coming from the perspective of Protestantism and therefore is uh, at the time that it came out was was was, was uh, it, it was uh, banned and uh, uh, kind of suppressed um, meanwhile those Protest, uh, the Protestants up in uh, Geneva the the uh, the reformers there um, they produced a, a Bible the Geneva Bible uh, which is an uh, uh, translated from Greek and Hebrew, and so uh, the English cousins of those uh, Swiss reformers translated the Geneva Bible into English. Uh, Henry VIII commissioned a Bible called the Great Bible, which was basically a revision of Tyndale's, and Elizabeth I also commissioned a Bible. It was called the Bishop's Bible, which was a um, a revision of Tyndale in light of the Geneva Bible. It was an attempt to uh, kind of Hit hit a good uh, a good medium between those two major uh, and influential translations in English in English at the time. Um, there was also something of a subversive Catholic English translation, the Douay or Rheims translation, which uh, actually was based on Tyndall's text, but has some readings that go back to the Vulgate, and so was a a, a sort of covert way that English Catholics were were trying to kind of influence things back their way. They had their Bible. And so in the middle of all of all of this, uh, you know, array of Bibles, King James steps in. And uh, one of the things that he that he is motivated by is, frankly, the Geneva Bible has uh, marginal notes that uh, indicate that it's probably OK with God if uh, you overthrow evil tyrants. And James, mm -hmm. as invested as he was in the monarchy <laughs> and the power Since that it he should was have, one. <laughs> yeah, being one and all, <laughs> found those kind of anti-establishment marginal notes incredibly offensive. <laughs> um, but the Puritans loved it. They loved the Geneva Bible, and they didn't like the Bishop's Bible. They they thought that there were some things in the Bishop's Bible that were uh, that were inaccurate. They preferred the Geneva. And so, and of course, the one of the legends that I've heard, and maybe Michael can comment on this, is that when they swore in George Washington as the first president, he insisted on having a Geneva Bible rather than a King James Bible present. I have not heard that story, but you know my feeling on Washington. If you hear a story about him, it's probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you, well, uh, given that the Geneva Bible was the preferred Bible of New England Puritans. I wouldn't be entirely surprised, but eh, you know, I I I, I can not confirm or deny that story. Um, yeah, uh, but like a lot of stories, I, I want for it to be true. <laughs> David, how different is the Geneva from the King James uh, Bible? Um, it's different on a couple of points. Uh, for one thing, it's uh the way it translates some verses, um leads to a, a reading of scriptures that uh, that would lead to a more Presbyterian ecclesiastical um, structure than it would to 
the kind of hierarchical ecclesiastical structure that was in the Anglican Church. And so one of the things that the KJV actually did was to uh, put put into the Bible translation uh, translations of those verses to make room for that the the, the episcopal uh, way of, uh, of 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 structuring a church. Um, you know, for instance, in in the KJV, you have you, you know you got bishops. Um, so that that was that was one of the things that was that was an issue was was making was was having a translation that doesn't eliminate episcopal hierarchy. Um, another thing that they that they did was intentionally not translate some words, uh, like well they they just transliterate the word baptize, so as not to uh, take a position on what exactly the mode <laughs> of baptism was. A heavy so, topic at the time, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it, it it was it was something that was uh that was a live issue, and so on some points like that, the the KJV actually steps back and uh, refuses to give a translation that would that would pick a side, because basically this right. was supposed to be a unity translation. This was this was aimed at bringing the different sec you know the different rival sects together. Um, on a text that they can agree on, and so the Council of Translators had had representatives from many different factions, though it was definitely weighted toward the Anglicans. Anyway, that's it. That's 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 the history. Um, it was it was there anything that I left out that you wanted to hit there, Nathan? No, I mean I think that your focus on the the marginal notes is important. I mean one of the things that. Uh, Marks the King James in our own day is that because it is public domain, you can make very inexpensive bound editions of the Bible with very minimal footnotes uh, mm-hmm. using the King James text. But back then, uh, you know, the aim of a published Bible was to, yes, get the text of the Bible into the hands of the English reader, uh, but also to put forward a theological agenda. And you're right, right that that Geneva Bible, I mean, for instance, when uh, when God says in First Samuel to Samuel that uh, they ask of a king not because they've rejected you, but because they've rejected me, I mean, there is a veritable theological essay in the margins there. I mean, that <laughs> for them, I mean, is the basis of worldly politics. If you have a king, that means you have rejected God. Right. You know, whereas, you know, the King James marginalia uh, focuses predictably a lot more heavily on when David is crowned king and it says that, you know, uh, this throne shall never pass from your bloodline. You know, there's a veritable theological essay in the margins there in the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's just a fascinating, you know, battle of the Bibles back well, in those days. And, I yeah. mean, not just back in those days, the, uh, oh, what is it called, the Schofield Bible in the early 20th century? Lousy. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Notable mostly for its insane amount of uh, arguable footnotes. Arguable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, every footnote is arguable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the footnotes. Well, the, footnotes right. the footnotes aren't the holy text. Yeah. No, they are not. <laughs> Thank God. Indeed, as we should often for many things. But anyway, Michael, the the King James Bible. It's only been around for four hundred years. Uh, that's a much shorter span of time than the Bible uh, taken as a, you know, a cultural phenomenon. Uh, but the King James Bible has had a mighty cultural influence. Uh, there's not enough time right now to talk about every influence. Uh, so I want to go around the horn here, pick out a high point or two in English language literature where the King James Bible has influenced literature and tell us about it. Michael, I'll let you go first. Then we'll hand it off to David, and then I'll talk. It's kind of a weird order, isn't it? Because I mean, you, you, I'm an Americanist, so you know my stuff's going to come centuries after you guys. But uh, I will... well, I'm trying to get away from the chronological order. Uh, fair I enough. Play with it this <laughs> uh, I, I want to go beyond 
uh, characters merely quoting the Bible, which of course happens a lot in in novels, uh, well into the in, well into the present. Um, and I, I want to talk especially about the influence of the King James Bible on the writers of the American Renaissance. So you get someone like Ralph Waldo Emerson, and if you if you read his essays, they really sound a lot like the poetic and prophetic he- Hebrew Bible in King James translation. Now, of course, he's not writing in uh, 17th century English, but he's he's very clearly influenced by it. His philosophy walks a very similar line as the uh, poetry and prophecy of the Old Testament. Um, especially, I think, if you look at Herman Melville, uh, the the thundering in his, in his mm-hmm. novels especially sounds a lot like the King James Bible. There's a lot of Shakespeare in there as well. But there's a, there's an awful lot of King James in it as well. Uh, you you can think especially about the names in Moby Dick, those half allegorical names like uh, Ahab and Ishmael and Rachel. All those things, obviously, from a deep and personal reading of the uh, the King James Bible. Um, and Melville actually brings up an interesting point, which is it's sometimes hard to differentiate between Elizabethan language itself and specific KJV influence and Shakespeare's in that mix. And, and what's really in that mix is Pilgrim's, oh, sure, sure. Pilgrim's Progress, which, I mean, for centuries was almost as influential on Engl- uh, English language literature as the Bible itself was. I, I imagine one of you will probably talk about Pilgrim's Progress, which is good because it's been a long time since I read it. Um, I also wanted to mention the, <laughs> the Book of Mormon, and instead of talking about the Book of Mormon myself, I'm going to let Mark Twain do it. Here's what he says in his book, Roughing It. He says it better than uh, I, I can. The book seems to be merely a prosy detail of imaginary history with the Old Testament for a model, followed by a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament. The author labored to give his words and phrases the quaint, old-fashioned sound and structure of our King James's translation of the scriptures, and the result is a mongrel, half modern glibness and half ancient simplicity and gravity. The latter is awkward and constrained, the former natural but grotesque by the contrast. Whenever he found his speech growing too modern, which was about every sentence or two, he ladled in a few such scriptural phrases as exceeding sore and it came to pass, etc., and made things satisfactory again. And if you've read the Book of Mormon, um, the one thing I really remember about it from my decade-old reading of it is that it says, and it came to pass at the beginning of every single sentence. Um, I think if you look at the Book of Mormon, and I'm going to take what might be a controversial stand and say that the Book of Mormon was largely written by Joseph Smith and not translated with a pair of special glasses. I think what you're dealing with in that is the use of King James language in the hands of someone who is not a genius. And, and to <laughs> stand over against that, I think we should all look at Walt Whitman, who is absolutely the best interpreter of King James language, if not actual biblical ideas. He is, uh, he is the Hebrew prophet in the modern world. He takes all that wonderful, wonderful tone and, uh, and, and language, and he focuses on, on these modern issues. And, and Whitman is just this thundering god whose work would be unimaginable, absolutely unimaginable without the cadences of the King James Bible. I, ha- I hope I haven't offended anyone with my attack on the Book of Mormon. To be fair, <laughs> Twain's attack. Walt Whitman. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which will which will make uh, people angrier. I don't know. I can't decide which is worse. No, right, but David, I mean, am I, am I wrong? You? You've read you've read Whitman. Is there, oh, I've is, read Whitman. I love Whitman. Yeah, I mean, the, the the Bible is in every line of Whitman in in terms of how it sounds, not in terms of what it says. Oh, sure, sure. Well, David, I mean, Michael obviously has a great love for the influence of the KJV. What have you got for us? I, I think it's funny that Michael uh, pointed to the Book of Mormon um, because I, I, I was kind of thinking in that direction too. But it's not just the Book of Mormon. Um, the one of the one of the powers of the King James Bible is that it it ingrained into whole generations of English speakers what God sounds like. Ah, um, and so. It's not just the Book of Mormon that sounds remarkably like the King James Bible. Um, I'm thinking also of uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's Secret Doctrine. She was uh, a 19th century founder of a uh, very esoteric and uh, kind of New Agey sort of uh, sort of group called uh, the, the the Theosophists. Um, and this is this little bit is is from the introduction to the secret uh, the secret doctrine when she's supposedly translating this ancient scripture called the Book of Dizan. 
uh, ere the foundations of the earth were laid, thou wert. And when the subterranean flame shall burst its prison and devour the frame, thou shalt be still as thou wert before, and knew no change, when time shall be no more. O oh, endless thought, divine eternity. You know, this, you know, in, in, in her case, this divine oracle immediately starts talking about these and thous and thou words and uh, right right this is not how people talk in the 19th century no this is not how people talk in the 19th century <laughs> but this is how the sacred sounds um right. so if you read if you read 19th century translations of the quran um it sounds like they they got the the king james translators to translate the quran because that's how the oh, that's amazing that's how the sacred sounds um another uh, another book from the 19th century the uh, a supposed channeled scripture called the uh the the oaspe uh o a h s p e the oaspe the new bible published in 1882 and delivered by automatic writing um it has uh this at the at the uh at the beginning of it uh where where are we um Chief over all that live and on the earth I made man, male and female made I them, and that man might distinguish me, I commanded him to give me a name, by virtue of my presence commanded I him, and man named me not after anything in heaven or on the earth, in obedience to my will named he me after the sounds the wind uttereth, and he said, E-O-Y, which is now pronounced Jehovah, and is written thus, and it has this <laughs> unpronounceable symbol. Um... It sounds like utter nonsense, but if you listen to the syntax, um, male and female, made I them, uh, you know, commanded I him, named he me, you know, that that syntax, which is picked up, especially from, you know, from the beginning of Genesis and that narrative. Um, yeah, it's 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 that echo. And it, I think it's one of the reasons why um, theosophy the book you know, Mormonism, the OASB, you know, the, these kind of other books that are coming out in the 19th century, why people fell for them is because they sounded like the way God is supposed to sound. You know? So, yeah. Thanks, Which is King probably James not Bible. how God sounds, right? Probably not. I, I've heard Although, Hebrew. David, he probably I... coughs a lot more. <laughs> right. Just to follow that up, David, I mean, one of the things that I've read from a a Jewish writer uh, in the 20th century, and, and and to be honest, I think it's, I, uh, no, I don't even know. It might have been Her Her Hermann Woke, but I'm not 100% on that. Uh, he said that, you know, one of the things that he had to untrain himself to think uh, is to read the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, because in Hebrew it's a very staccato, uh, three-syllable lines sort of thing. He says that, you know, compared to the very heavy thou shalt not you know mm -hmm. king james line you know the hebrew is just a very very different feel to it so i mean mm -hmm. I, I definitely hear what you're saying that king james gave us the sound of god <laughs> yeah well yeah. uh i mean it, the text that i go ahead go ahead sorry well it gave people the sound of god and it gave imposters a voice to impersonate sure anyway <laughs> anyway, uh, I brought a couple texts. I mean, one of them is uh, from the English Romantics, uh, from Lord Byron's Child Herald's Pilgrimage. Uh, and I mean, this is a wonderful poem in a lot of ways, but I mean, what's so fascinating about it is the tension between the libertinism and the strong sense of guilt that permeates it. Uh, and one of the stanzas in the fourth canto, uh, or yeah, canto, there we go, stanza 10 specifically uh, really, I think, brings forth one of the neat things about the King James, namely its preference for Anglo-Saxon roots as opposed to Latinizing words. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit after I read the passage, but this is Canto 10 from, no, stanza 10, Canto 4, Child Herald's Pilgrimage. My name from out the temple where the dead are honored by the nations, let it be and light the laurels on a loftier head, and be the Spartan's epitaph on me. Sparta hath many a worthier son than me. Meantime I seek no sympathies nor need. The thorns which I have reaped are of the tree I planted. They have torn me, 
and I bleed. I should have known what fruit would spring from such a seed. And first of all, of course, you know, those of you who listen to Metallica uh, in the <laughs> mid-90s know that uh, their song Bleeding Me is, a, you know, the chorus is, you know, directly pulled from this stanza. Uh, mm. But, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon roots there, you know, I mean, uh, the thorns, he reaps, it is a tree he planted, you know, uh, just those very, and I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as an English speaker, this is probably chauvinism on my part, but they are just very solid sounding words compared to the loftier Latinate analogs. Uh, and I mean, I think that that's, you know, definitely a sign that, uh, although his sex life probably wasn't all that influenced by the King James New Testament, uh, his poetic language is certainly, it certainly shows strong influences of that King James text. The other text I want to talk about more briefly is, uh, uh, the, the play JB by Archibald McLeish. Uh, it's from the 1950s, an American play. Uh, the dialogue in that is just rapid fire. I mean, it just clips along, but then whenever the divine voice comes, it's always a direct quotation from the King James Version. Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, McLeish uses that heaviness that David talked about uh, to great effect to distinguish between sort of a modern, um, superficial take on the world versus the very heavy divine. Well, anyway, uh, David, I want to I'll go back to you for a second. I mean, one of the complaints about some modern translations, <laughs> and among them, some of them that I enjoy the best, I'll, I'll go ahead and be upfront about that, uh, is that they've departed from the literalist approach of the King James. Uh, what exactly does literalist translation mean, and what differences and continuities, because I know you <laughs> love some continuities, uh, do you see between the philosophies that drove King James and those that have driven more recent projects? Mm. Um, literalist, uh, the, the, as, as I learned it, um, you know, back into Bible college when I was taking theology of the Bible and they explained, well, how do translations get done and things like that? Um, the way I was taught is, is the, the two poles are dynamic equivalence and formal equivalence. Uh, briefly, uh, formal equivalence is more translating word for word or attempting to represent as closely as possible the grammatical structure of the original in the grammatical structure of the translation. Um, dynamic equivalence is often explained with the phrase thought for thought. So the goal of the, uh, the translator is to, is to say what is the, the writer and the, what is the, the original trying to get across and then how do I say that most clearly in in the language to which I'm translating into. Um, these are not in direct opposition to each other. These are choices that right. have to be made um, in every moment of a translation. Um, so that the, there are more there are more poles uh, that set up a spectrum, and translations fall at various points on the spectrum. You know, no one would be no one would ever use a Bible that was strictly, that used strictly formal equivalents. Um, they wouldn't be able to understand it. Uh, right. The word or order alone would be unreadable. Yes. Uh, the KJV tends to, tends more towards the formal equivalence pole. Uh, uh, the, uh, the New American Standard Bible is more towards the formal equivalence into the pole. Uh, the New International Version is further down that spectrum towards the dynamic, but it's still it's still pretty close to formal equivalence. Um, it isn't quite, you know, the message or whatever. Um, right. So uh, I, I I don't th I don't think we can say well the KJV's literal and all these others aren't. Um, because even even the KJV, if like I said, if if you read the introduction that the translators give, they specifically say we're not doing a word for word translation. Um, they make the point that sometimes they translate a, a word from 
Hebrew, sometimes they render it with one English word, sometimes they render it with another English word, and which they choose depends on the context. They haven't just decided there's this one-to-one -one correspondence between this word in English and that word in the source language. Which just you know, means there's... they're good translators, right? Because no, yeah. nobody responsible would ever claim that one language is a code for another one. Well, that's the way the New World Translation works. Um the Jehovah's Witness Bible uses one-to-one -one equivalents of vocabulary as much as it can and still be understandable in English. Um, sometimes hmm. it ends up making very clunky verses, but uh, the KJV translators were more, uh, were more sensitive than that. They were also not translating straight out of the Greek and Hebrew. They were looking at, um, they were looking at the Tyndall uh, translation. They were looking at uh, the Bishop's Bible, they were looking at the Geneva Bible, they were looking at the Great Bible, they had these other English translations that they were also looking at, and then consulting the Greek and Hebrew to, to say, uh, to, to kind of check those translations. So very well, often, they chose the wording from an existing familiar translation when they thought that adequately expresses it. They weren't just right. mulching everything that came before. And so, you know, I, I I don't I don't think that that strictly literal you know saying that KJ, the KJV is literalist uh, quite represents the history of the production of that translation. Okay. And most notably, of course, uh, the Greek text that Saint Jerome used to translate the Vulgate uh, of Revelation uh, was lost to history when Erasmus constructed the Greek text that he used, you know, that, or the, pardon me, that the King James translators used to create the King James New Testament. Uh, so what they had to work from was actually the Vulgate Latin version of Re Revelation translated back into Greek by Erasmus. And it really wasn't until, I believe, the late 18th century that archaeology discovered a complete Greek text of revelation from the early christian era were there any wild changes nathan i'm not I, i've never not heard this story a lot before. and and you know honestly uh the changes are subtle enough that you know when i read about them back then back when i was in seminary in the early 21st century uh i remember thinking you know there's really not that much of a change here but it's just mm -hmm. kind of cool to note that you know the greek text that the king james folks were using of and I, I don't even remember the chapter range of Revelation, uh, was actually a fabrication of Erasmus's from the Latin text. Yeah. Yeah. And It's, it's and, a wonder and, it turned out coherent at all. I mean, we've all translated things into Japanese and back on the internet. Yes, but, <laughs> yes, but we are not Erasmus, and those computers are certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. One thing I did want to point out, though, is uh, mm -hmm. in the in the difference between the two is that you really you really notice it um, when you're looking at poetry. I'm going to say a bit more about that uh, probably a little later on, but uh -huh. um, very often dynamic equivalents will go f will will attempt to represent um, what a metaphor is trying to communicate, whereas right. formal equivalents will just present the metaphor. And Can so, you give right. an example that, of? Of them trying to give what the metaphor is trying to communicate, David, I can't quite get my head around that. This isn't exactly uh, uh, a metaphor, but I think it gets at what I'm saying. Uh, all right, you know the 23rd Psalm, right? Okay, so verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's Wait, a bit now, of poetic... I thought that I thought that line went, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left, fool. Um, that's a different psalm. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to have to check my translation. The new Julio yeah, no. version. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, David. So, so the psalmist, the psalmist David did not write Gangsta's Paradise. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no, wonder anyway. I fa no wonder I failed my Old Testament class. Yeah. But you know, that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. All right. It's very evocative, but it's something you have to unpack, right? Um, today's new international version renders that verse, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much the best possible response to that, right? <laughs> oh, well, well, it, it's, 
there's there's something about the mysteriousness of Valley of the Shadow of Death and the fact that you kind of have to hover over that phrase for a while and think, what does that mean? It sounds really scary. <laughs> and it, it, it means mean? more than Darkest Valley as well. Well, yeah, right, the, right. just trying to represent it simply with, oh, the Darkest Valley. Um, it, well, you know, not to, you know, well, I will import gendered term. It, it, it emasculates it. it. It's, you know, it's a neutered, it's, you know, well, it's a dynamic equivalence that is, that's lost its dynamism because the dynamism was in the figurative language. Anyway. Right. It's like those Although horrible, that, that... uh, no fear Shakespeare's. Where uh, oh. to be or not to be, that is the question turns into, I think I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> I don't know if it does or not, but that's what it should say. I, I will say, though, David, I mean, going back a little bit further than no fear Shakespeare, uh, that's not a phenomenon that begins with the English speaking world by any means. The, the Septuagint, for instance, uh, when it renders some of the Psalms, it, you know, it'll take a, a line that says, you know, our God is a mighty rock. And, you know, it'll say, you know, our God is mighty in his fortitude and, you know, sort of render them more abstractly in that Greek vocabulary. So, I mean, you know, it's it's been a temptation for a long time, it seems. Well, and all translation is to some extent. Right. I mean, because there's there's not really a way to 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 render exactly what it says. Unless you're the Jehovah's Witnesses, in which case obviously greek is a code for english yeah <laughs> right well one example that i remember from uh one book i was reading on translation um it might have been umberto echo's essay on translation which is really really interesting i wish you could re- pull the title out of my head but uh, he he refers to i think it's a french saying uh when they say uh, the translated literally it is i have the cockroach <laughs> um what they mean is i'm really bummed <laughs> okay now you could say to someone in english my god is a rock and they could say all right what is okay i could i could i could parse that out that's a metaphor that can carry over you know i have mm-hmm. the cockroach not quite so clear so you know the king James. Although it's Bible, funny, and, David, that the that the translation you used is itself a very freighted metaphoric construction. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> because that that kind of phrase is something that ends up, you know, very often being expressed with these kinds of euphemistic or metaphoric kind of uh, mm-hmm. kind of phrases. I am depressed just seems too hollow. <laughs> um, Although even there, you're using a geographic metaphor. Now, uh, what about, I think I'm going to kill myself? <laughs> no, that's what I referred to earlier as good Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, since I, since we've just discovered that it's metaphors, metaphors, metaphors all the way down, oh. uh, <laughs> Michael, I want to change gears entirely. I, I'm going to ask you to comment briefly on a phenomenon that I tend to think of, and I might be wrong, as a fairly American-flavored one. Uh, namely the King James only controversy. Uh, what kind of historical moments have driven this phenomenon and what are some of its arguments and what counter arguments are you aware of? I don't know about you guys. I hardly ever think about the KJV only controversy. I, I, you hear it, you hear it sometimes. And my, my response is always, wait, people still think that, but it is apparently <laughs> alive and well, just in different circles that I run in. I, yeah, I should say, Google it. Oh my I, gosh. I, I have had some experience with these folks. Grubbs, I am sure, has had more, so I will welcome his comments when I'm done with with my summary of their arguments. There are different types of people in the KJV-only camp. Uh, The true lunatic fringe, the ones people think of when they think about the, the King James controversy, believe that the King James Version is inspired or even inerrant that the way the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts are traditionally believed to be by evangelicals. Yes. Um, that is a laughably false claim, in my in my opinion, and I'll tell you why. I'll give you a few examples. Um, first, there's Second Kings two twenty three. Uh, this is a well known story. Elisha is out there, uh, and a group of 
blank, we'll talk about who they are in a second, come up and say, go down, you bald head, and he calls out a bear, and the bear mauls them all, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the end of the story. Well, the King James says, there came forth little children out of the city. So you hear this, and you, you picture Elisha having two bears slaughter Boy Scout Troop 99. <laughs> I am going to suggest that this is a bad translation, and that a better translation of that verse is, there came forth young men out of the city, and that they are physically threatening him. This, it, it is a radically different end to that story than, a, than the, uh, well, maybe not an end, but a radically different setup to that horrible punchline. Than <laughs> Ends the, uh, about the same. <laughs> than, than the, you know uh, what? What I actually like the inaccurate version better. Well, I, I got to say Teach the myth, right? Uh, and here's another example, and this this one's maybe even more important. Matthew 5:48, the King James says, "Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect." That's a, a well-known verse. But the the from my understanding, the the Greek word is better translated, "Become ye perfect" instead of "be," and that, I mean that's a radically different view of sanctification, and and and. The King James Version there doesn't really mesh as well with other parts of Scripture. Um, elsewhere, the King James leaves out passages. So uh, in Matthew 27, 49, Christ gets struck with a spear on the cross and it gushes forth blood and water. That's not in the King James. Now that evidence hmm. isn't going to sway the King James only crowd. It's just not, but it's pretty convincing to me. Um, there's another group that says the King James is the only... Uh, acceptable English version because it's the only one based on the proper manuscript. So in this view, the, the King James is supposedly based on these different and more reliable manuscripts than other translations. Specifically, the KJV purists tend to reject what's called the Alexandrian Codex because they feel it's been altered through the years. And I've also heard people, I've always wanted to ask you about this, Nathan, so I'm glad I have the chance. I've also heard people reject that Alexandrian Codex just because it's from Egypt, which they say is a traditional place of oppression uh, for Hebrews. So obviously we can't uh, trust any trans uh, any uh, version of the Bible that comes out of Alexandria. Uh, oh, I, interesting. I, <laughs> I don't have enough uh, historical background to answer those sorts of claims. I can answer the the other ones that I already answered, but I need you or David to to uh, take on the uh, Codex people. Well, I mean, you know, the, the Alexandrian Codex, you know, I know that scholarly editions of the Hebrew text tend to turn to it second. Uh, you know, they tend to prefer, um, you know, Palestinian manuscripts generally get priority. Uh, and you know, the reasons that I've heard are not that it's a place of oppression, but more that it is a center of platonic learning. It's the place where the Septuagint is translated and eventually it becomes one of the great seats of Gnosticism. Uh, so, you know, the suspicion there is that that very strong, Hellenistic Greek influence is influencing the transmission of the text. Uh, right. David, have you heard anything about it? Um, Gil Ripplinger, who uh, wrote a book called New Age Bible Versions, I mean, that is, that's one of her big arguments. She considers the modern New Age movement to just be a revival of uh, the, uh, the Gnosticism in the first, uh, first centuries of, of the Common Era. And her argument is that going back to those Alexandrian manuscripts is restoring Gnostic heresies and undercutting uh, sort of uh, Orthodox Christian truths like the actual deity of Christ or the truth of the okay. incarnation or thing, things like that. Um, I don't think that argument holds up, but that, but yeah, they do, they do make that, that, that connection back with Gnosticism. Okay. Um, now, the what they call the what they prefer is uh, the Textus Receptus. They they like the text that uh, Erasmus collated. They conflate a couple of things. Uh, they can they conflate what uh, is often called the majority text, which um, is really this kind of imaginary thing that you create if you take all the existing manuscripts and then choose the readings that appear most often. Um, you know, if there's a particular verse that has, you know, four different variant readings that tend to show up, well, which one shows up the most? Well, that's the one that goes into your majority text. Uh, very often, the text that Erasmus produced, the Textus Receptus, is 
conflated with or confused with the majority text in the writings of of you know the KJV only advocates and so they argue that the the King James version is uh, a better translation because it's based on the majority consensus text as if all of these bits of papyri got it got together and like voted (laughs) which you know i I, I, you know nathan you've you've had more you know you've probably had more training dealing with textual criticism and stuff like that than i have so when you hear that you're like yeah they don't vote um (laughs) well and and the problem is that even even that is even that is inaccurate because in uh, more than one occasion erasmus chose readings for his text that were not even that were not the majority readings um right. and also the fact that when he was collating texts um you still have the fact of north africa and uh the levant and even you know up to eastern europe being being dominated by um uh powers that uh were not um really interested in sharing whatever texts happened to be in their country. I mean, Erasmus couldn't just, you know, kind of sail down to, you know, Egypt under the caliphate and say, hey, um, have you got any Bible texts? Because I'm collating one, you know, <laughs> uh, we, we were we were cut off from that. And so he was having to rely on this this Western textual tradition, um, which had its particular readings that kind of came in through its stream of DNA. Um that's a metaphor, uh, but it, it, anyway, all, 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 all that to say that the most of the text, the, their their arguments for superior textual support are are pretty much bunk and in ways that only make sense to people who don't really actually know anything about textual criticism. <laughs> okay, do you have anything else you'd want to add, David, to the the whole controversy? Um. Just the, I, I think a lot of it grows out of what people are used to, and people don't like uh, uh, the KJV is what God sounds like to us. When you read the, you know, some other translation aloud in your church, God don't sound like that anymore, you know. Right. And and this is not this is not a peculiarly American thing. Um, I I haven't looked up the sources for this, but I, I've heard the 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 anecdote frequently. That when Jerome's Vulgate was read mm-hmm. aloud um, in, I believe, in Alexandria, um, instead of the Latin translation of the Septuagint, uh, there was actually a riot because uh, Jerome made a uh, uh, made a translation that was different uh, based on, you know, he, he made some choices about which text he would go with and translated in accordance with that. And that unfamiliar difference uh, basically caused a riot because maybe maybe oh they, my gosh Jerome is changing the Bible. Well, no, I, I and David, I, I wasn't familiar with that story, but I have read a translation of a letter that Jerome wrote uh, shortly after publishing the Vulgate, uh, in which he expressed terrible anxiety that people were going to hate him because he, he didn't give them the Bible that they were used to. Yeah, well, Augustine actually wrote letters. Uh, to Jerome saying, come on, man, don't change the Bible, man. The Septuagint's the Bible. Why do you have to go back to the Hebrew? I mean, that's like Jewish. Right. <laughs> and and Jerome had to school Augustine in, um, here's how translations work, son. Right. And eventually they did, you know, eventually they did make their peace. But yeah, Augustine was, uh, he, he was going to be a Septuagint-only guy. And uh <laughs> didn't didn't like what these newfangled scholars were doing with his Bible. Now we should yeah. note at this point that there was no actual physical exchange between the two. No one punched anyone. No, 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 no. They were in like <laughs> opposite ends of the of the world. They were just writing letters back and forth. <laughs> but that's the that's the only thing that kept Jerome from getting Saint Nicholas all up on his head. Too bad because I would have welcomed the opportunity to use my uh, ho 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 punch drop. <laughs> Well, it's more like ho 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 lick stamp mail. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, not a very exciting sound effect, I have to say. No, no, no. no. Well, David, I've I've heard it asserted often, but I've never really heard an explanation 
uh, of the fact that part of the appeal of the King James translation is in its poetic virtue specifically. Uh, you know, we've talked about its influence, uh, but in terms that would make sense to an intro to, to lit class, uh, what formal characteristics of this English translation uh, give it that appeal? In other words, is this a real case of literary merit that we can actually point to, or do people just get excited because it sounds vaguely Shakespearean? Mm. Well, that is part of it. Um, <laughs> All right. But if I'm gonna if I'm gonna make an argument about you know the literary merit of the King James version, um, mm. I might actually say that it's bigger than literary merit. Okay. It, it's it's this it's this giant text that basically bestrides the centuries after it and becomes you know it's a textual sea in which other literature swims uh, it, 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 and it's, if they live and move and have their being in other words yeah yeah kind of <laughs> um it, it, you know it's it, it's uh, I, I think it's its stature in english literature is such that um you know, it 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 almost doesn't really need defense, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Um, <laughs> one one thing that I did think was interesting in looking at the history of it is that the the translators were actually being self consciously archaic. They were translating during the reign of King James, and yet um, these and thous were falling out of style. In right normal speech but they use them anyway and there are other things you know phrase the phrase and it came to pass or verily the these are phrases that are falling out of style by the time you get to jacobine england but the translators are using them they're being self-consciously archaic um in order to create a a translation that's not simply of that moment they're trying to make something that has a higher tone to it that evokes um, the same kind of reverence that the accept that the other accepted translations have. Um, mm. So you know that part part of what what we hear in the King James Bible is the translators intentionally trying to make it sound like that <laughs> in a culture that was actually starting to move away from that sound. Mm. Um, Another another aspect of it, I think, goes back to the translation theory, which is because the King James, uh, especially in poetry, leaves more metaphors intact instead of going straight to what the metaphors are trying to communicate. There's mm -hmm. more actual intact poetry. Ah, and I, I I would I would say that that's that is a literary merit <laughs> mm -hmm. that. If the poetry actually remains as poetry and not simply as a, a synopsis of poetry in verse form, right? Um, that yeah, that has more literary merit, frankly. And that's going to be especially important, you know, not just in the Psalms, but it, but in the prophets, where you know the oh, yeah. oracles of God do come in that wonderful parallelism. Oh yeah, Be beautiful, beautiful stuff. But when you try to, you know, kind of take your uh, your exegetical machete and you know car carve through those metaphors and figures of speech and present what you find on the other side of it um, you've taken the fun out of the hands of the reader I mean part of what I think reading the, the Bible is not supposed to be fun David it's supposed to be painful and unpleasant oh, okay <laughs> which is which is why uh, we should read you know archaic you know versions that don't actually have you know words that we use anymore, so that we have to continually consult the, the dictionary. You mean like the King James version? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> just like that. Um, no, no, no. But I, 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 I well, I, I'm enough of a lit guy to think that uh, part of the part of what you're supposed to experience in reading poetry is hacking through the underbrush with the machete. You're supposed to do that, and that's part of it. Right. Which and is a you... different machete metaphor than your first one. Yes. <laughs> David has many machetes. Yes. He's, yes. He is a man of many machetes. Well, actually, I only have one machete, but, you know. 
David, what do you use the King James for? You, do you use it in your personal devotionals? Do you, when you assign the Bible to your students, do you make them read King James? What do you use it for? Uh, it really depends on what on what I'm trying to do. Like uh, one of our fairly regular blog commenters, um, I like to read. I like to read Psalms in uh, in King James. I like to read poetry, whether it's in the books explicitly of poetry or whether it's in prophets. As Nathan says, I like to read that in the King James um, because you know. All right, I'm 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 a child of the you know the chunk of western culture that king the king james helped to produce it does still sound like god to me so um it's it's a different kind of experience but it, you know i realize that it's mainly an aesthetic one and i don't read just the king james for those things i, I always have multiple translations that i'm that i'm trying to uh, uh kind of work through in parallel when you quote the Bible in your academic papers, do you quote the King James Version? Um, I'll actually usually, in academic papers, I'll usually quote something more recent than that. Mm-hmm. Me too. But that's, but that's because in academic papers, I'm, um, I'm writing about a period in which uh, the translation that the people in the period were using um, – would have to be translated anyway. <laughs> I see, yeah. See, I don't have um, that problem, but I still, I still usually cite the NAS unless, um, unless there's a specific yeah. reason for me to cite the KJV. I right. do assign when I teach the Book of Job, and uh, when I was at UGA, I taught it as a play along with King Lear. I assign the King James version because that's the that's the version that sounds like uh, like the Bible. Right. Right. If if I was. Um, for instance, if I was teaching a class or uh, writing a paper about uh, late 18th, 19th century, and argue kind of biblical uh, biblical influence, I would use the KJV because that would be what um, odds are what the whoever's writing the text that I'm working with what they're working from, and so then then it would be. It would be valuable to do that, but right. I mean, just for instance, whenever I teach Shakespeare, I always try to give my students at least a photocopied page of the Geneva Bible, so they can yes. see that you know this old-sounding Bible that's not the King James would have been what Shakespeare was familiar with. Again, listeners, this is Michael Farmer. I uh, regret to inform you that uh, we, we had to derail our show a little bit. Uh, we, we usually record on a Friday. Last Friday, we could not get Skype working to do our final segment. It is now Monday afternoon. We were supposed to record this afternoon, and Nathan ended up having an emergency that called him away. And so uh, Grubbs and I are here, and we're just going to close out the show. We were going to uh, the way we were going to close it out with Nathan in charge only. He ain't in charge no more. So uh, <laughs> um, he wanted to end not with a takeaway the, norm, the way we normally do, but with a public reading instead. And he says uh, it, he says that that's something he really believes in for churches. And I, I, I agree with him. I don't know about you, David. Yeah. Yes. So um, David and I are both going to introduce a text from the King James Bible with a book, chapter, and verse range. And then uh, we're going to read it out loud. And uh, that's going to be the end of the show. So uh, David, why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and start? All right. I'll be reading Psalm 73 and in its entirety. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup 
are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should defend, uh, offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. This is Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 7. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse... But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And Michael. that's it. That's our <laughs> that's our episode of the King James Bible. We do apologize for Nathan Gilmore's uh, absence during this last segment. Um, next week I'll be hosting, so uh, we'll be talking about the literary and philosophical notion of carpe diem of seize oh, the day. Fun. Yep, that should be. Uh, I hope I hope it's a good time. I have to. Some, uh, some questions to ask about it. Uh, until that time, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org, uh, where you can read our blog and check out other episodes of the show. Uh, for David Grubbs, for the now absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger. Oh, the Bible. The Holy Bible Let your mind find peace in God's Word Oh, the Bible The Holy Bible Let your mind find peace in God's Word Get your Bible, your holy Bible. Sit and let God talk to you a spell. So the Spirit, the holy 
whispers in your heart that all is well. Well, there are two trains going on that are so wrong. There are wolves in a mug, got sheep. There are lions on the corner and knocking at your door. It's from the Talking about the Bible, the Holy Bible, the undying authority of the Lord. Oh, the Bible and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are the only way for me. Jesus is the only way for